Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Darwin thought that all music was a love song, and he thought we sang for sexual selection, we sang for propagation of the species. And he makes a lot of commentary about bird songs. In fact, there's more in The Descent of Man by Darwin about bird songs than about human music. And I was very skeptical. I just didn't see the connection between birds and human beings. And he doesn't talk about apes or gorillas because they really don't sing much. So this, it seemed very impossible to me. But just in the last few years, there's all this scientific research backing Darwin up. It shows that the same hormones used in falling in love are connected with musical talent. So it seems pretty clear now that survival of the fittest is at least, to some degree, survival of the most musical. So maybe Darwin did have it right. Maybe all songs are a kind of love song. Are we all slaves to love? And how has the music of love shaped human evolution and sexual activity? Hello, good evening, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, as Cole Porter famously crooned, Birds do it, bees do it, let's do it, let's fall in love. Yes, on tonight's show, we're going to rock up the pace a bit and delve into that thing we call love, love, love. Music historian, jazz composer and critic Ted Joya talks the place of the unhappy love song in human history, the biochemical link between music and sexual selection, and why women prefer musicians over non-musicians. And does great literature require male characters? American writer Chloe Cadwell talks sex, vulnerability and obsession as teased out in her hit lesbian novella, Women. This is a show about love and courtship, addiction and shame, music and redemption. But first, is there no religion but sex and music? Ted Joya is an American music historian, jazz composer and critic and the editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Jazz Musicians. He's also one of the founders of the Stanford University Jazz Studies Programme and the editor of Jazz.com. Ted's books include The History of Jazz, Delta Blues, Work Songs and The Imperfect Art, Reflections on Jazz and Modern Culture. Well, Ted's latest publication, Love Songs, The Hidden History, is a fascinating and hugely entertaining meditation on the timeless love song, covering everything from the poetry of Sappho to rock and roll. In Love Songs, The Hidden History, Ted writes, It's hard to claim that sexiness ever falls out of style, but anyone who judged matters on the basis of cutting-edge popular music in the late 1970s and early 1980s might have speculated that a new Puritanism had infected the leading rock bands. Not since the age of Castrati has asexuality risen so high in the charts and arousal levels sunk so low. David Byrne of Talking Heads summed up the sentiment, announcing in his song, Life During Wartime, There's no time for dancing or lovey-dovey. I ain't got time for that now. Well, I had the pleasure of talking to Ted over the weekend. I asked Ted, is a cult of sex and romance the dominant form of cultural expression in society today? Well, you've got to realise that in our society now, the most important source of culture are love stories. 
But if you go back long enough, it was very different. It was all about religion. It was all about spirituality. And there, there was a changeover. The changeover happened at the late medieval period, where instead of the most popular music being about religion, all of a sudden it changed to being about love and sex. And that's been going on for 700, 800 years now. So I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that the culture of love, of romance, of sexuality, now has taken the central place in culture in a way that previously was left to religious institutions. Now, you describe the love song as a hidden history, as an outsider genre, as radical and disruptive. And you said that you you had no interest in being a revisionist historian. Yet when you came to researching the history of the love song, that actually the received or accepted view of history of where the love song came from, that historians had got it really, really wrong. And that the love song originated both from Africa and the Middle East. Well, this was a surprise to me when I started my research into the history of the love song. I expected it would be a story about lovey-dovey sentimental stories. It would be about people getting together and joining together in romance. But what I found was the exact opposite. The history of the love song is the history of repression, censorship, battles, conflicts, repression. At every juncture, when a new type of love song came on the scene, there was a backlash. Now, we've seen that in our own lifetime. People have seen with the rise of hip-hop or the rise of rock and roll that these new kinds of ways of singing are controversial. But what I found is that goes back to ancient times, back to the time of Confucius or ancient Rome. And so the, the history of the love song is very misleading. And generally, it's always outsiders, renegades, bohemians that have been the innovators in this music. And we can take it back to, you know, Sappho. We can look at the Bible, the songs of songs. It's been around. It's timeless, really. It's been around since we've, since we've had breath. You've got to go back to ancient Mesopotamia, <laughs> the very first love songs. This is 4,000 years ago. They're part of these fertility rites. And the idea was if you wanted the crops to be successful, the king had to have sex with a goddess. And there were songs associated with this. Now, it's not easy to find a goddess, uh, so the high priestess had to step in. And so we have documentation of these songs surrounding the coupling of the king with the priestess. And these are our first love songs. But really, they were meant to propagate the crops, to create stability in the kingdom. And you find these same rituals continuing well out throughout the ancient world. And then you have Sappho, and finally we have the personal love song, where people are singing about love really for their own purposes for their own emotional expression, for their own emotional satisfaction. And that's really the birth of the love song as we know it now. Why do you think women have been written out of the history of the love song? Because clearly from reading through your book, women have played a decisive role in shaping many of the songs and the characters in the songs, haven't they? Yes, well, it's, it's surprising because usually men get the credit. Men get the credit for these songs. But if you probe behind the scenes, you see women who are the innovators. I could give many examples. Here's some interesting ones. During the Renaissance, the nobles in France became famous for singing about love. And they sang about being enslaved to love. They were in bondage to love. But in fact, they were taking the same kind of songs that had been sung by actual slaves in the Muslim world. These female slave singers who sang about being in slavery to love because they actually were slaves. But they've been forgotten by the history books. Whereas the troubadours, who were the French nobles, the men, were remembered. I saw the same story in ancient China, where Confucius gets credit for these songs created by women. And probably the most famous example in our culture is the Song of Songs from the Bible, which is attributed to King Solomon. But if you read it, it's actually a love song from a female perspective. 
So this is the history of our love song. The women are the innovators, but generally the men end up getting the credit for these songs. Now, Ted, you have some very interesting research on music's role in, I suppose the best way of putting this will be sexual selection. And you bring it back to Darwin's Descent of Man. And you say that there's a biochemical link between music and sexual activity. That's fascinating, isn't it? Well, you know, originally I was sceptical. Darwin thought that all music was a love song, and he thought we sang for sexual selection. We sang for propagation of the species, and he makes a lot of commentary about bird songs. In fact, there's more in The Descent of Man by Darwin about bird songs than about human music, and I was very skeptical. I just didn't see the connection between birds and human beings, and he doesn't talk about apes or gorillas because they really don't sing much, so this, it seemed very impossible to me. But just in the last few years, there's all this scientific research backing Darwin up. It shows that the same hormones used in falling in love are connected with musical talent. So it seems pretty clear now that survival of the fittest is at least, to some degree, survival of the most musical. So maybe Darwin did have it right. Maybe all songs are a kind of love song. Do you think women prefer musicians? Well, the research, (laughs) I'm a musician myself, so I'm biased, you know, obviously. (laughs) Uh, But research shows it's true. Uh, They did several studies. One showed that if you'd sent out a Facebook friend request to somebody, a man to a woman, if the picture of the guy showed him holding a guitar, he was much more likely to get a positive response. And they did another uh, test, I think this was in France, where a guy would go up to women on the street and ask for their phone number. And he found, I think, 10% gave him their phone number. But when that same guy was holding a guitar, the response rate tripled. So to some extent, women must respond more favorably to musicians. That must be part of this sexual survival DNA that Darwin talks about. You give some very interesting background stats on the likes of Mick Jagger and that he slept with over 4,000 women. That's incredible, well, yeah, isn't it? Well, yeah, he wrote the song, I Can't, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. So that makes absolutely no sense. And perhaps it's because Mick Jagger is so good looking. I, I, I think I would dispute that. But no, it's clear. If you have any doubts about the appeal of musicians, just read their memoirs and biographies, because clearly they're, they're, pretty se- <laughs> they're more sexually active, I think, than, let's say, accountants or bus drivers. Do you think a good love song has to be sexy? Or there has to be some sexiness to it in order for it to be a good love song? Well, nowadays, that's the most popular kind of love song are the sexy ones. And I think a lot of it has to do with the videos and selling the songs through the videos. But that hasn't always been the case. If you go back in history, there were religious love songs. There was a whole backlash against the troubadours by people like Dante or or St. Francis of Assisi who would do these love songs that would borrow from the troubadours, but they would be devoted to the Virgin Mary or to God. I call this a love supreme. This is an attempt to get a a very transcendent, a metaphysical kind of love song. So, yeah, we assume nowadays that all love songs have to be sexy, but that's just us right now. But if you look at classics from Eta James and Billie Holiday, I wouldn't describe them as sexy. They're moody. Well, there's this whole phenomenon of the torch song. And this was a, a new phrase that came out in the 1920s. When people, when you're in love with someone, they don't love you back. That was, they called that carrying the torch for them. And starting in the 1920s and 1930s, there were a lot of popular songs devoted to these unhappy romances. And, and for about 10, 15 years, those were the most popular kind of love songs. You didn't want a successful love song. You didn't want a happy love song. You wanted one of these sad, melancholy ones. For some reason, there aren't as many now, and I don't know why that is. These things seem to go back and forth in fashion. But, but you know, for the longest time, people wanted these very melancholy love songs. 
But that allows us to bawl our eyes out and to scream our heads off and to lose the rag. And by doing that, we release and we are able to let go of our love. Surely. Well, that's what Aristotle said. <laughs> if I can get a little highbrow. He said, you know, all art was about purging our emotions. And we want that feeling of release. And so, yeah, I think there is a place for the unhappy love song. There is a, is, is a place where there's, there's something. In many ways, the most powerful songs are those sad songs. Those, those really reach deep into our emotional lives. You've done some very interesting research on shame and the love song. And you write that 90% of songs that are written are about love, yet the critics prefer to write about the other 10%. Why do you think Well, that I is? encountered this in my research. Whenever I, I, I would talk to people and they say, Ted, what are you writing about? And I'd say, yeah, I'm writing a book about love songs. And you could just see that they, the whole idea of these songs embarrassed them. They're ashamed of these songs. Yet I know these people. I know they listen to the love songs just like I do. And this is something I learned from studying the history of the music. This goes back to the ancient Romans. The Romans were ashamed about being in love. You know, they recognized that people fell in love, but they thought it was a kind of disease. It was almost like a kind of madness. And so we inherited from the Romans this same shame. And as you say, the music critics are no different. They don't, almost every song out there is about love, but they prefer to write about the other kinds of songs. That, what I found, this was amazing. I'm the first person to write a full, complete history of the love song. It's the most pervasive kind of song in human life. It, it, no one wants to talk about it. So it's, it's the Romans. They, they made us embarrassed about all this music. So do you feel you're, you're writing an historical wrong, so to speak? Oh, absolutely. The history of the love song, as previously told, has been completely misleading. People don't understand. The love song is a very powerful thing. It's changed society. It's changed how we love. In many ways, the way we conduct romances now are because of the music. It's been a force for for human rights, for personal autonomy, for freedom. So the love song is much more complex. It's much more interesting than people realize. And and so I I do feel I have righted or wrong by writing my book on the history of love music. Now, Ted, you have a great chapter on divas and deviancy. I particularly love a bit of Puccini from time to time, you know, La Bohème or a bit of Carmen, a bit of Verdi, the mood that that brings, you know, going to great operas and these singers blasting it out, that that brings me into a romantic place. How do you situate well, opera as distinct from pop or folk or rock or death metal? We can have a death metal love song like an opera. Well, nowadays opera is considered very respectable. It's very highbrow. It's, it's very elite. Uh, but in its history, it was scandalous. It told more honest stories about love than you could find anywhere else. And it's full of, of stories of adultery and betrayals and two-timing. And so people were attracted to the opera for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons were the stories were just more authentic. They were more true to life about romance than you could find anywhere else. And also the opera house for many, many years was itself a center of romance. This is where people would meet to set up these secret meetings with, you know, between the sexes. In fact, one person said they'd call the, the, the house of opera, but the opera house should be called the house of adultery for all the affairs that begin there. So opera has a very different history than we perceive it now. Nowadays we see it as respectable, but for most of its history it was very scandalous. But it can have a scandalous effect on the body, do you not think? Music itself is emotionally stimulating. And there's this whole age-long controversy. When we see stories of love depicted on stage or in a song, do we imitate them? You know, parents for centuries have believed that's obviously so. They've tried to control what songs their kids hear because they realize that if you hear about it in a song, you might go do it. 
And we laugh at that, but, you know, there's probably at least a little bit of truth in that, I would say. Now, you have a superb quote in the book where you say, I think you're quoting Plautus, the Roman playwright, and I fell around laughing, but it's quite true. Plautus said that he who falls in love meets with a worse fate than he who leaps from a rock. Well, this is back to the Romans. And, you know, it's interesting, C.S. Lewis, who we all know from the Narnia books, was a great scholar of ancient and medieval culture. And he said the Romans were unaware of what we would call romance. They didn't know about it. What we call romance, they had never experienced. And I disagree with them. I think they did know about romance. They just feared it. And so you always find in, in the Roman plays, the lover is always held up as a figure of ridicule. We do a little bit of that now. We have these romantic comedies on, on the movies, and, and we laugh at the lovers even as we enjoy the love story. So we're, and we really haven't come that far from Plautus. We still are a little bit nervous about romance, even though we enjoy the stories. Do you think there, we have a lot to be grateful for for the black slave culture in terms of bringing the love song to a wider audience, maybe, and putting it centre stage in some way? Well, here's the interesting thing is I kept on finding again and again this connection between slaves and love songs. You know, in Roman days, they would let the slaves perform the music. Respectable people didn't perform love songs back in ancient Rome, but the slaves were allowed to do that. And then I told you in the Muslim world, all the great love songs were sung by these female slaves. And then you find the same thing in the United States, where all the innovations in love music come from the slaves or the children or grandchildren of the slaves. The blues isn't the greatest example, uh, but there are plenty of others. And so I had to ask myself, why do we see this connection between love songs and slavery? And I think it's because whenever a new way of singing about love comes out, it's very controversial. So only the outsider, only the marginalized, only the people who are beyond the respectable norms of civilization are able to sing about these exciting new conceptions of love. So it's no coincidence that slaves have been innovators in love music. But from a philosophical perspective, then, if you take that, the outsider becomes the change maker, which becomes the insider. It's very interesting, That's isn't right. It? Everything becomes legitimized eventually. I mean, just look at rock and roll. When rock and roll came out, it was so controversial. Here in the U.S., you couldn't show Elvis from the waist down on TV. The Beatles were considered rebellious and renegades, and the, and the music was sexually dangerous. But fast forward to the current day. We now it's Sir Paul McCartney. Uh, rock and rollers are invited to the White House here in the U.S. So eventually all these dangerous ways about singing about love become legitimate. They eventually become respectable. But there's always some new revolution that's coming up that will once again be controversial. So it's a cycle, and the revolutionary soon becomes part of the mainstream. What do you think jazz's contribution has been to the love song and the evolution of the love song? You know, the jazz songs had a very snappy, ironic, peppy way about singing about romance. Very frank, uh, with a little bit of humor involved. I think people actually learned how to go on dates from these songs. I mean, if you go back to the 1930s and 1940s, I believe the language men and women would use on dates was, was drawn from these love songs. If you wanted to know what to talk about on a date, you couldn't ask your parents back then. Your parents were not good guys. They probably even had an arranged marriage or something. But you could learn about it from the music. So I do think that jazz taught people about love, just as rock and roll and pop music teaches people about love today. It's remarkable when you think about it, how culture, how it all, we're all interconnected in some way and how it's brought in in every aspect of our life, isn't it? Well, that's right. I, I increasingly am of the view that our day-to-day life, music shapes how we lead it. 
There's a view out there that music is just entertainment. We, we listen to it when we're bored, but it really doesn't have much impact beyond that. I disagree completely with that. You know, I've spent 20 years now studying the social history of music, and I'm now convinced that the songs we hear actually shape how we lead our lives day to day. It's political, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's physical. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, all those elements come together. It's not just entertainment. We tend to think of music as just entertainment, but it's much richer than all that. Now, you end the book on a very reflective note and you say that it ain't what you don't know that gets you. It's what you think you know that ain't so. Well, you know, that's what Will Rogers said. And I I really think that we have misled ourselves about this music and, you know, what it means to our lives and how how important is it shaping our values, shaping our activities. And so if if I've done anything with my research in the history of the love song, I'd like to think that I've I've opened our eyes. And so we we know more about it and we're less likely to fall into the, the incorrect judgments that are in many ways the legacy of the past. So to play out with a love song, what will it be? What is the ultimate love song? Or can there be an ultimate love song? Now we get into personal taste. I mean, I'm old school. I'll go but back to Frank Sinatra taste. or love is always Bill taste. Or Billy Holiday. I think th- these are very individual choices, you know. And so I'm, I like the old romantic songs. If you talk to the younger generation than me, though, they're going to want the sexy twerking songs, so. which in many ways go back to those fertility rites of ancient Mesopotamia. But for me, the ultimate is, you know, you go that whole period starting with Billie Holiday into Frank Sinatra and all and culminating with rock and roll and the Beatles and the singer-songwriters. Uh, to me, that's the golden age of the love song. And if you had to pick one, what would it be? Oh, maybe something like Good Morning Heartache by Billie Holiday or Lush Life, the way Johnny Hartman would sing it. Or maybe one of those great Frank Sinatra songs like Night and Day or maybe the Beatles. All you need is love. What a great sentiment that is. That really sums up everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was music historian, critic and composer Ted Joya. Love Songs, The Hidden History is published by Oxford University Press and retails at about 25 euros. OK, let's stick to brief and enjoy a bit of cheesy, sexy Sinatra and Night and Day. Night and day are the one only you neath the moon or under the sun whether near to me or far it's no matter darling where you are I think of you day and night night and Why is it so That this longing for you Follows wherever I go In the roaring traffic's boom In the silence of my lonely room I think of you Day and night Night and day And oh, such a hungry yearning burning inside of me And its torment won't be through Till you let me spend my life making love to you Day and night, night and day 
sun Whether near to me or far It's no matter, baby Where you are, I think of you Day and night Night and day Why is it so That this longing for you Follows wherever I go In the roaring traffic's boom Silence of my lonely room I think of you Let me spend life making love to you day and night Night and day Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 and you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, let's keep with the theme of love, sex and obsession and embrace a bit of queer fiction with Major Bite. Hello, my name is Chloe Caldwell. I live in Hudson, New York. I am the author of an essay collection called Legs Get Let Astray and a novella called Women, which I'm here to talk about. And Women Chronicles an affair between two women, 19 years apart, and it's a dramatic lesbian love affair that is doomed from the very start. I've often thought in life that there's just some people that we should never hook up with. Do you agree with that? That there's some people in life that, you know, it's never going to be a good idea. I don't know. I never really thought of it like that. I mean, maybe as we get wiser, we think like that. But when you're in the phase of your life where you're hooking up with people... You're usually, you know, usually, not always, in your early 20s where I don't think people think that way. And a lot of times when they do know they're going down the wrong path, they have that perverse desire to just do it anyway because they're young and, you know, think that nothing that bad will really go wrong. Chloe, tell me, Women is quite an interesting novella. Would you describe it as semi-autobiography or how would you describe yeah, novella? Yeah, we described it like that. It's been described so many different ways, but I think that that is how we described it. You know, it's fiction, but I did have the idea for it based on a fling that I had had, and I just thought it would be really interesting to write a book that that relationship was the catalyst for, but then go into all these other women friends and women therapists and just have, I didn't plan for all the characters to be women, but it ended up that way for the most part. It tells the story of quite a messy breakup. Yeah. And two characters who, although they fall madly in love with each other, are not very good for each other. And right. it gets very... Toxic is the best way to describe it. And we've all been there in relationships that start out great, passionate, 
fantastic, stimulating, interesting, and then they just fall apart. Was right, that very difficult to write about because you're touching on some of your own personal experiences? For me, it's fun to write about. I always liked stories about breakups. There's a book I love that is called Just Breakup, <laughs> and it's by this French woman named Catherine Texier, and I read it when I was like 22, 23, and it really stuck with me. There's something about her book Breakup that I, I think I kind of tried to do in women as well, where it's kind of, I was kind of writing from inside the trauma. Like, I wanted it to be, you know, when you have a bad breakup and you're just tunnel vision and you don't have perspective, that was the sliver of life I wanted to convey as opposed to the wiser perspective when you're looking back and talking about a breakup. Because when you're going through the breakup, you're, you know, you talk to people and you're angry and you're sad and you get drunk and you get very belligerent. Um, That was what I wanted to convey instead of like just being like smart about it. I kind of wanted to honor that sort of grief that we go through. Chloe, women reads like a diary. It's very honest. It's almost like a journal entry of sorts. Mm-hmm. Was there a redemptive quality in all of this for you in writing? I'm not sure. You know, it's funny. People often think books that read really personally are like journal or diary entries. And it's, it's sort of offensive because there's so much craft involved. Do you know what I mean? Like if my journals were read, they're just such a mess. Whereas when I write my books... There's just so much craft in editing, so it's funny to me. But yeah, I know what you're saying because I think the reason it reads like a journal is because I put some stuff in that a lot of people I think would feel a lot of shame around, and such as drinking tequila and breaking your phone or, you know, even getting in this kind of, you know, being open about this sort of affair type of relationship. But your narrator is very adrift in life and we've all been adrift in life, whether it's been from a very bad breakup, a grief, loss of a job, any form of loss. You spiral out of control. It's hard not to. I'm just wondering within all of that, it seems very much like a journey type of a book. Would you describe it as that and how you wrote it? Yeah, I think so. I do, definitely, because it starts off where the narrator moves to a new city, meets this woman, everything's great. She thinks it's so it's so great. And although the narrator knows from the beginning that it is going to end in a doomed, you know, there's no spoiler for this book, which I kind of like, like, you know that it's doomed from the very beginning. Yeah, and it just kind of, I would, I guess it's, it's an emotional journey is what's happening. It's an internal conflict journey. Do you think many men will read this book? Because a lot of the books centers around women. It's called women. But in terms right. of female psychology, it's yeah. cer- it certainly shows the cruelty that women can enact on other women. Definitely. And challenges the stereotypes that men can only be cruel in relationships. Women can be just as vicious. That's so true. And I, and I, ho- I, I love that you said that. People haven't brought that up a lot. And I kind of, I, didn't, I don't think I said it in the book, but I wanted that to come through, is that the narrator thinks, oh, I'm safe because I'm with a woman now. You know, I'm, I'm dating a woman. So, you know, she's loving and caring and, and she's um, in touch with her feelings and she's really, she seems really available emotionally, whereas men usually aren't. You know, the way the narrator and the character Finn are constantly emailing and texting and talking. But that's exactly right. I kind of, I wanted the reader to notice that, um, yeah, just because Finn is a woman and the narrator is a woman and she has women friends, they all are disappointing and hurting each other and putting each other in unsafe positions. There has been a lot of men that have read it, 
Definitely. Um, I think they take away from it something probably way different than what women take away from. But men have enjoyed it. I think for them it's like they get to read, you know, a slice of life. They think that they can, like, learn something. And I don't know, maybe they just like the lesbian sex scenes. Who knows? Within the book, you really bring out the urgency you feel when you fall in love with somebody. Yeah. That you must act now. And this all has to happen now. And it's all so exhilarating. Your narrator has an addictive personality. It almost yes. makes love into an addiction, or certainly Finn, the object of her desire, becomes mm-hmm. an addiction. Why did you want to kind of bring those two themes together? I've always been really interested in addiction and substance abuse, especially when you don't identify as an addict. So the narrator alludes to having done drugs, taking pills and, you know, and then there's times she drinks too much and eating too. I put some like binge eating in there. Um, And then she meets Finn. And in the beginning of the book, the narrator moves to this new city to kind of stop doing drugs and kind of start anew. And she does. But the funny thing about it is right when she stops doing drugs, she meets Finn. And I do, I think they're related. I think that both things, love can be an escape from life because you fall into a little bubble and a, and a world and it distracts you from everything else and it makes you feel good, especially when it is something that's so exciting as the relationship was with Finn. You just get so much adrenaline and good feelings. I, I'm just interested in that in real life with people, like what they use to feel good because it's so different for everyone. And the narrator, yeah, went through a time of life where she was using a person to feel good and then that person was gone. And, and like any addiction, good. she pushes it to the very yes. max, you That's know, right. tests yeah. and tests. It's extraordinary. Do you think we can learn from these catastrophic experiences in life, especially when it comes to love? Do you think we can learn more about ourselves or about compassion or empathy? Do you think oh, yes. there's some light at the end of the tunnel in all yes. of those experiences, dirty or otherwise? Definitely. And I think for myself as a person and what I put in the narrator is that Sometimes you're impatient. Um, I think there's a line in there I have, which is something about, you know, I know that this will pass, but I need it to pass now, but I'm impatient. I don't want to go through the grief. Like, I'm impatient to feel better. Because sometimes when you're in those parts of your life, you forget that they will end, and you think that's just what life is going to be like. So the narrator thinks she's just going to be devastated and heartbroken forever. But the wiser part of her knows, okay, it's going to be gone in like six months, maybe six years, who knows. But like, how do I get it out of me now? I think that these kind of relationships, I think they open us up so much. And I think sometimes you have to do things wrong to learn how to do things right. And you need this kind of heartbreak to be a better friend, be a better lover, be a better partner. Now, Chloe, the novella is in the Mm. genre of queer fiction. I'm just wondering, your narrator hadn't thought that she was ever going to hook up with another woman. It wasn't something that she'd planned or at least thought. She she was open to different experiences and she's quite a creative person. But she hadn't actually consciously thought, do I fancy women or not? Or am I sexually aroused by women? How, How has that gone down in the queer women's fiction community? Because in one way you're you're showing how open the world is and how spontaneous yep. and interesting. But in another way, it's kind of kind of doubling back on all of that and saying, well, we may go into lesbian relationships when we're not necessarily lesbian. Right. So right. you're pulling back. So I'm wondering how has that all gone down amongst queer women's readership? That's such a great question that no one ever asks me. 
I was really worried, to be honest with you, that there was going to be a lot of backlash about that, about exactly what you're saying. And I thought that, like, all of these lesbian websites and, you know, reviewers would say, you know, this person isn't a lesbian just because they have a hookup with one woman. And I just thought that there would be all this stuff about that. I was really worried. Because she could be seen as just as spontaneous and emotionally vulnerable and flipping in out of a lesbian experience that maybe isn't the experience she's looking for. Yeah, exactly. What do they call it? Like lesbian for a year or whatever when you go away to college. Um, There's some term for your freshman year of college where you experiment with women. You know, there's a whole stigma and then there's a whole stigma around bisexuality. But what I like about the book, which I didn't do on purpose, is that the narrator never says... I mean, she's really confused, but she never says, now I'm a lesbian or now I'm bisexual. It, it kind of stays in that gray area. So I think that that, I don't know, kept me pretty safe. And it's been fine um, within the community, as far as I know. <laughs> and I did have one review. I don't know if you're familiar with Bitch Magazine. It's a feminist magazine, and it's out of Portland, Oregon. And they were one of the only places that did give the book a pretty snarky review and they were upset about how the sex had been conveyed in the book and that I wrote that uh, Finn and the narrator weren't using condoms and were having sex in this certain way and they were saying that that was wrong and that, you know, it was just, they were complaining about that. But besides that, it's been, it's been fine and it's been interesting for me because I never identified as bisexual or anything and, you know, and then suddenly I am kind of a voice in that community. But the novella is very much a story of unexpected love and will in all of that self-sabotage. So is it credible, do you think, that we can never really put a label on our sexuality? That at some stage in our lives, for whatever reason, that we can open up and unfold in different ways? I think so. Um, But I think that's a really hard place to live sometimes in your head only because the outside world is just always asking you to label yourself and, you know, check off a box. And that's part of the narrator's struggle, is living in that gray area. But, I mean, I know for myself, yeah, that is that is what I think, and I'm trying to live in that gray area. But, you know, it's confusing, and there's, there's stigma around not labeling yourself, and then you, it's like you kind of can't win if you label yourself and if you don't. But, yes, I think so. I think sexuality is a really very fluid thing for most people whether they you know know it or not now Sarah Walters is hugely popular this side of the water and yeah she's she's done incredibly well in their last few books I'm wondering for queer women's fiction who would you be suggesting oh great you know I haven't read Sarah Waters and I'm dying to I would suggest definitely Maggie Nelson she wrote a gorgeous book called Bluettes and it's a lyric essay. And then her new book, The Argonauts, just came out in May from Grey Wolf Press. And that chronicles her relationship with um, a gender-fluid man, um, an artist named Harry, Harry something. Sorry, I forget. Um, that's a great book, The Argonauts. Gorgeous. And I, don't, I love uh, Jeanette Winterson for that. Oh, so great. So great. I read a lot of her books while I was writing Women, actually. Love her. And... Ashley Ford, um, she writes from a bisexual point of view, and she writes um, tons of essays online for BuzzFeed, among other places. So your next book that you're writing, will it touch between fiction and nonfiction and the lines and the boundaries between what we bring into the book from our own lives? Or what will you be doing? My next book, um, I, we actually just announced it. I just sold a book to Coffee House and Emily Books. They are based in Minnesota and New York, 
It's called I'll Tell You in Person, and it's a collection of essays. So it's all straight up nonfiction. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's supposed to come out in fall 2016. But, you know, to be honest with you, I really kind of miss that hybrid genre that I did with women. I really, really do. So I'm hoping to do something like that again in the future. And that was Chloe Cadwell. Women is published by Short Flight Long Drive Books and retails at about €12. Now, before I wrap up, I have a handy little competition for you. The good people at Books Ireland have one annual subscription to give away for Books Ireland. So all you have to do is answer this fairly straightforward question. In one of Heaney's most famous poems, Midterm Break, how many feet was a coven of his younger brother? A blank footbox. A footbox for every year. It's a gorgeous poem. Best of luck. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's show with some words from music historian and critic Ted Joya. In his conclusions to Love Songs, The Hidden History, Ted writes, So is this the end game of the love song? Are we seeing the final validation of Darwin's claim that the drive to procreate plays a tune and the rest of us just dance to the primal beat? Is survival of the sexiest the inescapable rule of the day and every day to come the formula for popular music that will always deliver superior metrics? Perhaps, but I'm not ready to write off romance. The rituals of courtship and heady euphoria of emotional surrender are in their own way as alluring as the provocative sex commands of our viral videos and with perhaps even more potential for aesthetic transformation. The narrative of love with its endless complications and resolutions offers more variety than even the most skilled courtesan can invent or digital Kama Sutra contain. When compared with the tangible qualities and overwhelming physicality of sex, the ineffable metaphysics of love must strike us as insubstantial, perhaps even as burdensome, preliminary to the main event. But the heartfelt love song, yes, even the wimpy love song, has overcome far tougher odds in the past. And if it has managed to surmount religious, political and cultural obstacles during the course of millennia, it can certainly find a way around YouTube algorithms and the conventional wisdom of our hormone-driven music business. Good night. Size, the lonesome organ grander cries The silver saxophones say I should refuse you The cracked bills and washed out horns Blow into my face with scorn But it's not that way I wasn't born to lose you I want you I want you I want you So Drunken politician leaps upon the street where mothers weep And the saviors who are fast asleep, they wait for you And I wait for them to interrupt me drinking from my broken cup And ask me to open up the gate for you I want you, I want you, yes I want you so bad 
cute to him, or was I? But I did it because he lied, and because he took you for a ride, and because time is on his side, and because I want you. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108.